0: Let's read this passage in Isaiah chapter 6, and then I'll pray for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, Let's pray, Father in heaven. Um, as has already been said a number of times this morning, we are people in need of your strength. People in need of your grace. People in need of a renewed experience of your love, uh, because we're weak. We're um, sinful. We're not enough, and. Um, we struggle. And you've promised to, to meet us through your word. You've promised to, um, to give us that renewed experience of your love and your grace through your word. And so I pray that um, as we look at this passage together this morning, you would help us. You would meet us. You would be with us uh, in, in new and fresh ways, or maybe in the same ways that you've met us before, uh, but just come and be with us again. Thank you for each person here. I pray that you would open their ears to hear, uh, and I pray that you would open my lips to speak uh, what is from you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, recently, and some of you know this because you were with me, uh, I had the trip to go to the beach. Uh, We got to take a group of students from Columbia to Florida for an RUF, the organization I work for, an RUF conference. Um, And it was quite a long day of travel. Uh, We started at 7 a.m., and we didn't get there till around midnight. Um, And we had a lot of hiccups along the way, although less hiccups than we had on the way back. So lots of travel troubles. But when we finally did arrive, uh, got everyone settled in their rooms, I threw my bag down, and um, I thought, you know, I'm just going to go to the beach. I'm going to go see the beach. And so I went down to the beach, and immediately the first thing I was struck by was the stars, uh, because in New York, it's easy to forget that stars even exist, right? Or maybe if you're from a different global city, you've had this experience as well. And so what I actually did was I just laid down on the sand. I looked up at the stars, and I just tried to kind of sit in that. Um, and I was I was praying, uh, and I was just trying to be still before God. And then I focused on one individual star for a while, and I started to think about how far away that star is from me and then I tried to think about how big that that star is Um, scientists estimate that there are, I wrote this down, I think a hundred billion stars just in our galaxy with a B Um, and they also estimate that at the very least there are ten trillion other galaxies with at least a hundred billion stars in those galaxies. And so, in that moment, I was, as I was experiencing, sort of, to put it uh, in simple terms, the bigness of that star and the smallness of myself, I started to feel the bigness of God, that the Creator God is actually the one who made that star, but all the other stars and all the other galaxies uh, was having. You might say just a very small experience of what we call God's holiness, his set-apartness by seeing just a little picture of his creation. Uh, In the passage we read, this is why I bring this up, Isaiah, who is a prophet of God uh, thousands of years ago, also had an experience of the holiness of God. Except he wasn't looking at God's creation. He was actually having a vision of God himself and this vision had a very profound effect on him. And he actually lived the rest of his life in response to what he saw and experienced that day. So whether or not you would say that you've had an experience of God or God's holiness yourself, I think what this passage will show us as we look at it together is that we're actually all living in response to God's holiness. We're living in response to God's holiness. So, I want to explore this encounter that Isaiah had with the Holy God under three headings. First, we'll look at the terror of the Holy God, and then we'll see the touch of the Holy God, and finally the task of the Holy God. I'll put it in nice alliteration for you. Uh, so the the terror of the Holy God, the touch of the Holy God, and the task of the Holy God. Uh, let's go back to our passage. We'll start with our first point, uh, verses one through five. So so what does Isaiah actually see in this vision? He sees a divine king. He sees the Lord seated up high on the throne. He sees uh in, in this huge room the the um robes that signify the royalty of the Lord fill the whole room. But also it's not just any room, it's the temple, right? This is God's own house. This is the place of worship. And so um, well, in the U.S., uh, when we think about government and government authority, I-, I think we tend to be pretty cynical and pretty irreverent. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched a show about British royalty called The Crown, or really any other show, you know, kind of about European royalty, ancient royalty. And whatever me- you may think about that as a government system, that's not my point. Um, that w- w- At least when I watch that show, there's something inside of me that is kind of captivated. I almost get emotional just watching like the dignity and the grandeur, you know, when you see people lining the streets for miles to cheer these royals, we don't have anything like that um, as Americans. And there's a kind of like high beauty, there's a set-apartness to a king or a queen. And then parallel to that, if you've ever visited one of the great cathedrals of kind of the ancient world. Um, You may have also felt that way in a beautiful and austere place of worship. It it sort of takes your breath away. Um, And so what Isaiah is experiencing is a combination of that royalty and that divinity, all in one person, in one vision, but to to the furthest degree. And in that, we get just a small glimpse of what it must have been like to see God seated on the throne in the temple. Okay, now for historical context, um, Isaiah, or sorry, Israel, the nation that Isaiah was part of, was on the brink of war with uh, with a big, scary nation to the north. One of their enemies, their biggest enemy, in um, in the middle of that, their king of forty years has just died, and so of course Isaiah would have been feeling the fragility and the insecurity of this moment as. He is supposed to now be God's prophet to these people who are under this threat without their king. And here God appears to Isaiah to say, I am the true king. I'm the king of kings. And then, of course, we have what might seem a little strange to us as modern readers, but the seraphim. And the seraphim are, we know a little bit from the rest of scripture, they're angels. And they're described in other places as well as essentially having the appearance of burning fire so these are not maybe the image of an angel that you might have in your head uh, this is a this is a warrior of burning fire essentially and when these angels speak the foundations of this huge temple shake and yet even they have to cover their eyes when they uh, be at, at the brightness of God's holiness even they have to cover their feet. Because they sense their unworthiness to be in the presence of this divine king. And so you can imagine how Isaiah, just a lowly human encountering this holy God, must have felt. Let's say, um, I know we have at least one basketball fan in here. Uh, Let's say you're a pretty good basketball player and you're winning. You're playing a pickup game with your friends and you're winning, feeling pretty good about yourself and suddenly you're dropped in onto the court of the NBA Finals game, one of the NBA Finals games. The best basketball players in the world surround you, and they're at the top of their game. And for you, these guys are idols, right? They're they're gods. Um, Imagine how you would feel in the presence of such greatness. Or let's say, to go a different direction, that you're doing karaoke with your friends, and you're singing your favorite Coldplay song. I know at least one person in this room who was at the recent concert at the MetLife Stadium. Uh, let's say that in the middle of this, you're belting out Coldplay, and then all of a sudden you're dropped onto the stage in the MetLife arena with the real band around you and the fireworks. And you know we all saw people reposting on Instagram, right? The fireworks and the lights. Um, thousands of fans. Imagine how you would feel in the presence of such greatness. And Isaiah is saying that that's just, that's just a tiny picture of what it's like to encounter a holy God just for a moment, is to be in the presence of such greatness that you feel overcome with your own unworthiness to be there at all. But in Isaiah's case, it's, it's even more complicated than that, because it's not just the greatness of God, it's also the fact that God is the one who sees. God is the one who judges when we come into a very bright light, like I'm kind of experiencing right now, what do we notice about ourselves first? It's usually our blemishes, right? Our imperfections. Uh, I don't know if you've ever stood in front of one of those like movie star dressing room mirrors with the little orb lights around it. Um, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about. And Isaiah knew that when he came into the brightness of God's presence, he was fully seen, not just by himself, but by God, for who he really was. In other words, the word we can use for that is he felt terror. Now, why would someone feel terror when standing in front of a judge? Well, it's guilt and it's shame. And take just a brief moment to sort of unpack what those mean a little bit. Uh, Guilt says, I have done wrong. I have... My actions make me unworthy to be here, standing in front of this judge. And shame, related to guilt, says there is something wrong with me. I am sinful. My very identity makes me unworthy to be here. And I think both of those dynamics are at play when we stand in the presence of greatness and we're being seen fully. I have done wrong and there even is something wrong with me. And Isaiah is experiencing the weight of his guilt and shame in the presence of God. The first words out of his mouth, if you look at verse 5, are, Woe is me. And that Hebrew word woe means kind of a lot of things. It's a tiny word, but it's essentially, I'm undone. I'm coming apart in the presence of this holy king. And he goes on to talk about his uncleanness. And so his guilt is saying, I've done unclean things. And his shame is saying, I am unclean down to my core. In this encounter with the holy God, he's utterly exposed. Uh, John Calvin, commenting on this passage, wrote, Until God reveals himself to us, we do not think that we are men, or rather we think that we are gods. But when we have seen God, then we begin to feel and know what we are. Hence springs true humility. One of the major projects of the modern Western world, I think, has been to try and eliminate these categories of guilt and shame. You know, we say there's not actually something really wrong with us. We just need to make some minor tweaks to our mental health. But wanting these... Bad feelings to go away doesn't actually make the reality of a holy God go away. Uh, Take the iPhone. For all of its positive contributions to society, I think also in many ways the iPhone is the culmination of of a modern effort to fit the world into the palm of our hands, to be able to reduce and control glory and beauty and power into something manageable. And therefore, what do we have to be afraid of? I can hold it in my hand. But the truth is that, and I think we know this, we don't actually have the power that we sort of wish we did or think we might. This illusion of control is actually more just a distraction from what's really going on. And, and the way we know this is for all of our efforts, I mean, you can geek out and go through history with Nietzsche and Freud, for all of our efforts uh, to do away with guilt and shame... Uh, they just won't go away. We still have these feelings that I've done wrong, there is something wrong with me, and these are just perennial issues in the experience of human beings. Um, I wonder if you've ever woken up in the middle of the night, like I sometimes have, just feeling like I'm not good enough. I have to do more. I have to do better. I have to be better. I have to work harder. These kind of cycles that play in our minds. Uh, Romans 2 says something fascinating about this problem that we experience. It says that the law of God, and when we talk about the law, in one sense we're really just talking about the encoding of God's holiness into standards. So the law is, if you take God's holiness and put it into standards, we can call that the law. Romans 2 says the law of God is written on our hearts. It's written on our hearts. It says our consciences bear witness and our conflicting thoughts accuse us. In other words, the reason that we have these conflicting and shame-filled thoughts about not being good enough is because our consciences are reminding us that the holiness of God is written on our hearts. We know deep down that we don't measure up because we're designed with an innate sense of something, of someone greater, utterly set apart from us. And it's in this light that David in Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? And again, our culture wants to tell us, we really aren't that bad off. All we need is improve your mental health, purge toxic people from your life, and do what makes you feel happy. And I I know I sound a little cynical. I am all for improving mental health, for the record. but I just don't think that that explanation really gets to our lived experience. We feel something deep in our bones related to this guilt and shame, this, I am not enough. I haven't done enough. So let's go back to our passage. Um, what actually happens to Isaiah in this moment when he encounters this holy God, when he feels the weight of what we're talking about here? I think we expect that at the very least he'll be reprimanded. um, Or maybe even just sent away, expelled from God's presence, or maybe even crushed by the weight of God's holiness. And I think this is exactly what Isaiah expects as well. He says, I mean, he bursts out, Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm dead already. And that's the terror of encountering the holy God. But to explore what actually happens... Let's look at the touch of the Holy God. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 7 here. So if you notice, we're looking at smaller and smaller chunks of the passage, so don't worry. See, God actually does something really surprising here. He, He doesn't destroy Isaiah. He doesn't banish him. He doesn't even ridicule him. He touches him. And for the original readers of this passage, this would have been the last thing that they expected, I think. And certainly, it's the last thing Isaiah himself expected. Why would this holy God, in this moment, move toward Isaiah? You know, like the uh, on the court of the NBA Finals game, if suddenly, in the midst of feeling your unworthiness to even be there, Steph Curry turns and passes you the ball. What? Uh... Or like the Coldplay concert, instead of Chris Martin kind of looking at you and motioning to the security, like, please get this person off the stage, while he sings the chorus of your favorite song, he just comes up and puts his arm around you. It's the last thing you would expect to happen in this moment of unworthiness. In other words, God surprisingly validates Isaiah's presence there and allows him to stay. Uh, Let me read verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So if we read carefully, we'll we'll notice that God is saying, Yes, you belong here with me, but I want you here, but you must be cleansed. You must be washed. In order to stand in my presence with me, you must have that guilt and that shame removed completely. See, the surprising thing about God is that despite his greatness and despite our unworthiness in comparison, he really wants to be with us. He really wants to be near us. He wants to enjoy us. So we talk about having a relationship with God. He wants that. But at the same time, there's this, woe is me. There's this, I am unclean. I don't deserve to be here, much less to have a relationship with this holy God. And so it's at this moment when God sends his agent, this angel, on his behalf to go and to cleanse Isaiah through touch. And we'll notice a couple things about how he does this. First, uh, notice what he touches him with he touches him with a burning coal from the altar. And again, this may be a strange image to us, but in the Old Testament, um, the people knew that they were unworthy to have a relationship with God. This was a daily sort of lived reality for them. And so they would bring an animal sacrifice and burn it there um, on this altar in the temple. And, and they did that as a standing in their place to put before God as a payment. You know, may my guilt and shame be placed upon this animal instead of me. And the altar is the place where they would do that sacrificial offering. And so God's agent, this angel, takes the leftover coal with tongs of this sacrifice from the altar and goes and touches Isaiah with it, saying, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. In other words, despite your unworthiness and your uncleanness, I accept this sacrificial offering. And I even use it to cleanse you. Even though you stand here with guilt, I take your guilt away. I atone for your sin. Even though you yourself are not worthy to stand in my presence, I want you here. And so on the basis of this sacrifice, I declare you now worthy to be here. And the second detail I want to look at of this encounter is, notice where he touches Isaiah with the coal. Again, kind of a strange image at first glance, but he touches him on the lips. And this is the very place in the verse before where Isaiah has just essentially declared, this is the source of my deepest shame. When I come into that bright movie star mirror, the first thing I see is, I am a man of unclean lips. See, Isaiah is a prophet of God, he's supposed to declare God's truth and call people back to God using his lips, right? He's supposed to speak. That's his, you know, you guys know the memes that say, you had one job. Have you seen those? Like someone making some huge mistake. You had one job. Um, Standing in God's presence, Isaiah feels his total unworthiness to be a prophet, to use his lips. I'm I'm a total failure at this. And I want to point this out because it shows us how specific and how thoughtful and how particular God is in his forgiveness. Um, I'm sure there would come a time later in Isaiah's life when he would again feel this weight of unworthiness. And he might be tempted to say, like we sometimes do, I know, I know, I'm forgiven, but, but can you really forgive that? Like, I'm a total failure as a prophet. What about my my, my speech? I'm, un, I'm unworthy. But God, I think by starting with that place, he's essentially saying to Isaiah, there's no part of you that remains unforgiven. Even the very thing I'm calling you to do, even if you fail at that, I remove every last bit of your shame. And I treat you based on the worthiness of this sacrifice. And so for you, I don't know where sort of that most unworthy or ashamed part of you might be. But I want us to reimagine God's forgiveness, not just as a broad blanket statement, but rather as a specific and laser-focused action that God takes in our lives. He looks at us under the bright light of His holiness, which is terrifying, and He sees everything, and He says, yes, I know about that too, and I forgive you. Your guilt is taken away. You can stay here with me. And so I think the question this leads us into, if we're following sort of the logic here, is how can this little touch of coal have the power and the authority to cleanse Isaiah and to cleanse us from every last bit of guilt and shame? How can God, in all of his holiness, how can he invite us in without wiping us out? Well, you know, Isaiah is not the only story in the Bible of someone who was keenly aware of his uncleanness, and yet who nevertheless approached God. Uh, In Mark 1, there's a story about a leper, and it says the leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling to him, said, if you will, you can make me clean. And then it says, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. See, just like Isaiah, this leprous man has a face-to-face encounter with the holy God. Just like Isaiah, there is a sense of terror there. He falls on his face and begs. He feels his unworthiness. Um, You know, lepers were total outcasts. They had to live in colonies outside the city. Uh, If ever there was someone who felt, uh, worthless or unclean or not good enough it was this man but then of course just like Isaiah there's also the touch of the holy god and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying i will be clean now at, the, at that time the very last thing a sane person would do is touch someone with leprosy to risk getting infected with leprosy was to risk the complete social and relational ruin of your life and also to, to risk death. Uh, it's kind of like how you would feel if someone, maybe this is too soon, but if someone you know has COVID, like you know they have COVID, and they walk right up to you with no mask on, um, what's the last thing you're going to do? Touch them, right? Uh, especially if you knew that this wasn't just a disease that lasts 10 days, but it, you stay infected and ostracized for the rest of your life. You stay in isolation the rest of your life. And so what Jesus does here is utterly astounding. He could have simply healed this man with the word of his power. We know that because he healed a lot of other people simply with his words, but he chooses instead to move toward, to touch. And again, this is touching this man in the deepest place of his shame. The one thought the leper would walk around with is, I'm untouchable, I'm untouchable. And Jesus touches him. See, he's saying, I'm willing to take your uncleanness upon myself to make you clean. I'm willing to be shamed to bring you into a place of honor. I'm even willing to die to give you life. And that is exactly what Jesus does through his death and resurrection. See, the cross is the final altar. It's the, it's the last sacrificial offering that was brought before God, where Jesus took on our guilt and shame before the Father, And so when Jesus comes as God's agent to bring healing touch, he himself is also the burning coal and the sacrifice. And the great news for us today is the way we receive that healing touch is not physically but by faith, simply by faith. When Jesus touched the leper, there was a a two-way exchange happening. The sickness and shame of the leper was transferred onto Jesus and the health and beauty and honor of Jesus was transferred onto the leper and he immediately had a renewed sense of his status in society but even more than that he immediately had a renewed status before God. And so for those of us who have been touched by the forgiving hand of God who have believed upon Jesus as our final sacrifice simply by faith Hebrews 4 which was quoted earlier says we are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace, not cowering in terror like Isaiah, but boldly like beloved sons and daughters before their father. Our guilt and shame have been removed and placed instead on Christ, our sacrificial offering, and his beauty and honor have been placed onto us. So we actually do belong in God's presence. We really do belong there. Um, If you wake up in the middle of the night with a gnawing sense that you're not enough, you can now say, if you're a Christian, even though I am not enough, Jesus is enough. I no longer belong in this state of fear and hiding. I belong in the presence of the Holy Divine King, who is also my Father and who welcomes me. And this is why Christians talk about things like freedom and joy. These aren't just abstract concepts or emotions that we're trying to conjure up. These are categorical realities that we're trying to learn how to lean into more and more throughout our lives. We're truly free in God's presence. And so the Christian life is a process of learning how to shake the old categories that no longer belong to us and live more and more in light of this forgiveness. When we confess our sins earlier, we're not hoping, cowering, will God forgive us. We come knowing we're already forgiven. In Christ, to experience afresh that freedom, right? That love. So let me make our last point here briefly, which is that first, Isaiah feels the terror of being in the presence of the Holy God. Then he experiences the healing and loving touch of the Holy God. But lastly, in verse 8, we see that he experiences the task, or he's given the task from the Holy God. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And I can't resist that we're on Trinity Sunday mentioning that this is in the Old Testament and says, Who will go for us? It's pretty cool that God refers to himself in the plural, um, even thousands of years before, or hundreds of years before uh, Christ was revealed just a total side note but um so what is this task what is this task that isaiah is given basically it's just to respond to the loving touch of god it's to to be sent it's to go see god transforms isaiah in the place of his deepest shame and then he sends him out to use that very part of him that has been transformed right his lips in verse 9, it's not printed, but the very next thing, the very next two words God says to Isaiah are go and say. In other words, use your lips. Use the very part of you that you were just now most ashamed about, but that I have renewed by my healing touch. And so as we think about um, our own places of shame and unworthiness, maybe you have those playing in your head right now. Um, those parts of yourself that really feel unclean in God's presence, I just want us to consider two things. First, what might it look like for God to come directly in contact with those parts of us? Like, what would happen if we actually allowed God into that place? It, It would certainly be terrifying. But there's also transformative power in the healing touch of Jesus. It's terrifying to be seen. But it's only through being seen and known and still loved that we experience freedom. And secondly, then how might God actually want to give us this same task, to send us out into the world from that healed place? See, He's pleased to use even our weakness and our insufficiency and what, what was once a display of our inability now as a display of His strength and His power. Isaiah so willingly says, here I am, send me, when just a few moments earlier he could never have responded. He was crushed by the presence of God, but now he's been healed. His guilt has been forgiven, his sins have been atoned for, and he's got a new sense of freedom. And it's not here I am, send me, because I'm worthy, I deserve to go. I know I have this strength within myself. It's here I am, send me, because although I am a man of unclean lips, although I am unworthy, in the end, I'm overcome by an even greater sense of being seen, loved, and forgiven. I'm free to go and live a life of following and serving God and loving others because this is I've been given atonement as a gift. And you see the difference that we often fall into the trap of thinking that the Christian life is, let me muster up the strength and goodness within myself to show God and to show others I can do it. But here we see the way of God is, I have no strength, I have no worthiness, and yet I'm forgiven, I'm atoned for, I'm free, I have nothing left to fear. Yes, here I am, send me. Now obviously, Isaiah was a special case, he was God's chosen prophet, right, to bring, uh, to bring God's word to his people, Israel, and most of us won't have callings that look like that. But all of us are called by God to to this task of being sent in some sense, of um, God using us uh, to spread the love that we've been given. You know, to love your neighbor as yourself. To use the place where you've been transformed in your weakness and in your shame to then go and serve and love those around you. So there's the terror of the Holy God, the touch of the Holy God, and finally, the task of the Holy God. And let me conclude with this. <coughs> What is the heart of God in this encounter? Why did he choose to move terrifyingly close to Isaiah? And why has he chosen to come really terrifyingly close to us through the person of Jesus? He came to bring his redeeming touch, but still, why? It's because he wants to invite us in without wiping us out. He wants to be with us. He wants us to have an experience of his love and to have relationship with him, even as he wants to send us out into the world to share that same love with others. Let me pray for us. God, we, um, we come into your presence now just thanking you that you are this type of God. That you could truly wipe us out when we think about how big you are, how small we are, how holy you are, how unworthy we are, and yet what you really want is to heal us. What you really want is to forgive us because you want to be with us. You like us. You love us. And so we praise you. We thank you. And I I pray that for each of us here... um, we would have even just a a small glimpse of what that means in our day-to-day lives. Uh, Just that we really are free. That if we have believed upon Jesus, we're, uh, we're free. And we have the fullness of your love. Help us, Lord. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.